This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything impacting your career. I'm Tom Hodson, your guest host today, and in this episode, we'll be talking about the importance of continuous learning. My guests are WOUB's own Beverly Jones, wearing her coaching hat today, and WOUB's good friend, Judge Gail Williams Byers. When she's not in her courtroom, Judge Gail teaches other judges through programs of the American Judges Association and the National Judicial College. We'll be talking about why continued learning is vital to your career, your health, and your resilience during tough times, and why it's just plain fun as well. Bev, it's, it's great being back in your chair again. I, I'm getting used to this. I really like it. But <laughs> I, I like not, it, too. I like being on this side. I'm not going to take over. It's, it's your podcast. But today, I, I wanted to talk about uh, two things that um, you've brought up many times to me and to others, and the, the term resilience and the term continuous learning. Now, I I know what those mean separately, but I'm not sure I totally understand what they mean together. So can you sort of frame our discussion today? Well, I can um, maybe make a brief introduction and we'll see where it takes us. I've increasingly over my years as a coach have started to think that resilience and learning are very tightly tightly connected. And there seems to be lots of research now explaining a bit of why that happens. Basically, resilience is, it's an ability to bounce back during tough times. And that doesn't mean that uh, you're happy and cheerful and everything just rolls off your back. It means that you find a way to keep going, even when things are difficult. And people who have a learning mindset, who who understand that they've learned in the past and they have the ability to figure things out, tend to be more likely to be resilient, to, to be gritty and keep going, even when things are tough. And there are a bunch of different reasons for that. But but one of them is is simply that if you have the habit of learning new things, if you're always making connections, you develop a real deep belief based on experience on your ability to figure things out or learn what's new. So that even in the dark days, you have some positivity, you have some optimism, and those are really critical positivity and optimism. Those are really critical to psychological resilience, to, you know, just getting through the day. Does that give a bit of an overview? Yeah, I I think it does. And and now I want to bring in uh, our special guest, and that's Judge Gail Williams-Byers. Judge Byers is uh, my co-host over on our podcast, Spectrum. 
as we're looking at a multi-part series on race and racism. But um, she also is a longtime friend of yours, Bev, and uh, just recently on September 2nd um, was the subject of an article in the New York Times about resilience. Boy, Gail, how, how did you uh, rate that? Well, I'd also like to say before I mention that is Tom forgot to mention that at least I'd like to think I'm a longtime friend of his as well. That's true. That's also <laughs> de- perhaps debatable. That's that's true. No, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but um, that that piece in the New York Times, for which I am um, deeply grateful, um, only came to be because of and as a result of my deep and abiding relationship um, with Beverly being my um, now seemingly lifelong mentor, um, coach, and second mom, and having taught me so much about the power of resilience and actually what it really means to really find what she just defined as that um, that next level of, of grit or stick with itness or what I like to call the bounce back. Um, I think to, I would like to think that in the work that I do, and, and perhaps Tom, you could agree, the, the work of, of judges is intense work. And it can be work that is consistently intense. And unless and until you, you know, create, you know, these points of, of breaks or these intervals where you purposely pull yourself apart, um, you have to find a way to sort of rise above the intensity of it so that you can actually get through and find the focus that you need to accomplish the work at hand. And there's got to be a way um, to do that. And the the way that you're able to sort of, you know, find the wings to rise above and to find the focus to do the work is to to create a method of resilience that allows you to to train your focus on what's at hand. But the way you do that is not focusing on the thing at hand, but to actually turn your focus to something else. And I think um, the way that um, Beverly just defined that is just wonderfully defined. And practice is a little more difficult. So it takes practice, but once applied, it works wonderfully. So let me take you just through a, an example. And by the way, the article was written by Carrie Hannon, a longtime friend of uh, this podcast and a longtime friend uh, of Beverly and a noted specialist on uh, coaching and, and career health. Uh, she wrote the article in, in the New York Times. A couple of things right off the bat, uh, Gail, though, uh, you were a prosecutor or assistant prosecutor, but you were prosecuting heavy-duty cases uh, before you became a, a judge. And I was interested, when, when you were trying a serial murder case, you took up horseback riding? You know, how did you choose what what you were going to divert yourself with. Yes. And so um, actually, that was a case where I was actually the supervisor of the county grand jury. And so in Cuyahoga County, it's the largest county in Ohio. And um, I was responsible for overseeing the indictment of nearly 20,000 cases a year. Um, in that particular case, it was particularly you know challenging and unique because it was a serial killer case that involved multiple victims, all of which 
were African-American females. In every single instance, um, the victims had some kind of challenge that related to a drug or substance abuse issue. And in at least one instance, we were not able to find all body parts of at least one victim. And it got so overwhelming um, because what I decided early on in the case was that the easiest thing to do as a supervisor would be to pass the case off to one of my subordinates to lead the investigation, because before a case can ever be tried, it must be investigated in order for it to be potentially indicted. And then the case is passed off to a trial prosecutor, but it must first be investigated and before it's presented to the grand jury. And I decided that because of the nature of the case, because of the type of victims, because of the mountain of evidence, that um, it wasn't the kind of case that was ripe for merely passing off to someone, but that I needed to be the lead um, prosecutor that was responsible for the investigation to make sure that this was done. Because if it's never done right in the beginning, it won't be right from every step going forward. And so that was a really heavy lift. And I knew it would be difficult, not only from the investigation standpoint, but also present it to a grand jury. And um, I didn't, I didn't realize, however, how much difficult evidence would be involved in this case. Yeah, I just didn't know. And it just so happens at the same time that this case is ongoing and I'm almost daily absorbing this challenging information, a colleague of mine um, had mentioned, and I had always been interested because I had taken a vacation years ago with a friend of mine and we'd gone to Honduras and one of the excursions was horseback riding. And I'd done it before. I really enjoyed it, but I never knew anyone who had actually taken up horseback riding. And when this case came across my desk and I started the investigation, I remember just sitting at my desk, taking a deep breath. And I knew there was no way I could get through it by merely just plunging myself in day in and day out without being emotionally um, undone by the time it was over. And so a colleague of mine, for some reason, and I don't even remember the reason why, um, somehow mentioned that he um, knew someone that owned a stable and that they offered lessons. And it was like a godsend. And I asked him for the information and I ended up calling and I called and they had lessons available. And I started taking lessons and I knew that being on that horse would require me to focus on something totally different than the elements of murder or prior calculation and design or any of the things that would require me to focus on that case. It was a different kind of focus, but it was also a release of sorts. And it allowed me to move away from the issue at hand to something that was different, that was, it gave me more perspective. But I learned as I took more lessons that actually I came back to the work at hand more focused, more clear thinking. I was able to actually do the work, even though it was challenging and it was difficult, but I wasn't so immersed in the work that I wasn't able to get it done. And I was just, I was then sold on the idea that, you know what, this is what helps you to get above the most difficult thing that you're facing is when you can disconnect, focus on something else and come back to it 
and actually be able to plow through it and get it done. It is. It was an amazing experience. Bev, you've done some writing uh, uh, about this, and and part of your your writing is is just spot on with what Gail's been talking about. Yeah, and and I just want to point out a couple of things that happened to Gail based on what she was saying here. When she shifted her attention and and started learning something entirely different, she totally immersed herself in that. So the the first thing that happens is that you get some of the benefits of meditation where you're kind of letting go of that constant um, uh, voice in your head worrying about all the things you have to worry about. So you're you're getting a break. So that's at one level. But more than that... When you're engaged in learning, even if it's something that is not as much fun on, on the outset as, as, as riding a horse, perhaps, you're if you're really working at it, you're authentically you. You are. It's just you and what you're doing, and there's nothing fake. Nobody's looking at you. You are really um, fully engaged, and that feels rewarding. And and as you learn okay. something, let, let me let me interrupt here yeah. because I want to ask you a question before I forget it. On that, you know, you're completely immersed. But you know, if you're trying something different, you can be really bad at it, and that's difficult for people who are high achievers. Talk about that. In, ah, well, in that is a, this. you know that is a really good point, and. One of the reasons it's sometimes hard to encourage successful people to learn new things is that they have a fear of failure. They have a fear a fear of um, you know feeling bad about themselves, of looking foolish, and so forth. So uh, when I'm working with um, clients and hoping to have them use new learning as a way to kind of break through a, a situation. One of the things I try to do is is if if they're resistant to trying something new is to find something that's just a little bit out of their comfort zone and is inherently fun. Um, it can be, um, oh, I don't know, um, um, learning to dance or it's something they've wanted to do. If you can learn to do something that you've regarded as fun but you feel shy about, and you find that you fail and it doesn't matter and you can keep going, then you can take that to other more serious things in your career because you've learned that you can learn. You've learned that failure at something isn't failure. It's part of the learning process. Um, So it is difficult for many people to take up something new. So you find a way to do it bit by bit. And it becomes, um, it's so rewarding that it becomes um, self-reaffirming. One of the reasons it's so rewarding is, is just body chemistry. You know, when you have a little success, your happy chemicals um, kind of release <laughs> and, and you, you have this sense of a little shot of happiness from doing something well. And each time you learn something new and you get it, it's just like you won a little prize. So practicing on a small scale and kind of getting that sense of how fun it is to learn allows you to take it to bigger things, and it may be the bigger things that are more transformative. 
two things before I get back to Gail with you, Bev, and that is you, you've written about uh, keeping a learning list and, and maybe trying micro-learning. Now, for somebody who's not used to jumping into the deep end and doing something totally uh, different, uh, talk about how those might help. Okay, first I'll take them in reverse order. The first one on micro-learning, it's been around for a long time. Remember when we were kids, maybe we used flashcards and did one a day or had a, a, a calendar on the kitchen wall, which is the, uh, the word of the day, and you learn a new word every day. Micro-learning is learning in little bits. And you know I love the power of small steps to take you to, to big places. So if you're, um, if you're frantically busy, if you feel like you're overwhelmed, if you feel like um, the idea of learning something new is just too much, give yourself, make a commitment to spend five minutes a day or five minutes, three days a week, whatever it is. I, um, I think this can be useful with something like social media, which is intimidating for people as they're trying to learn how to Maybe they know for their career it'd be good to be active on LinkedIn and they hate it and they feel lost. But if you can do it for five minutes and you learn little teeny bits at a time, you can build up some momentum. So microlearning is about not thinking you have to spend all Saturday studying, but but coming up with a small um, path or small steps on a consistent path and it can take you in a big way. And then a learning list is... Um, basically just keeping track of things that you'd like to know. I, if people are convinced that learning is a great way to um, empower their career or to get out of a rut of any sort, sometimes they think, but I can't think of anything useful. But if you, uh, if you have a list, if you have a journal or you just have a uh, index card on your desk, whatever system works for you, every time you've catch yourself thinking, oh, that would be interesting, or I wish I knew about that, or so-and-so is really good at this. I wish I were good like that. You make a note of it so that um, you don't have to commit yourself to anything, but you're keeping a list of the kind of things that might be interesting to know more about. And so then when you're kind of in the doldrums and you feel stuck and you don't know where to turn, you just pull out your list and say, all right, I'm going to spend um, uh five minutes a day learning something about this, or I'm going to take a couple hours tomorrow and plunge in, however it works for you, you've got a starting point. Uh, let me let me ask you, Gail. You had a quote in your New York Times article um, that, that said that you really try to expand your brain with your learning at, so that your wingspan becomes greater and it gets you a little higher when the headwinds come along. I, I, I thought that was so well put. Uh, but, but you've done so many different things. I mean, you've done sign language. You've learned sign language. You, you took a webinar on labor trafficking. Uh, you know, you, you've done classes and workshops on getting a commercial driver's license, of all things. Uh, it, it, Talk about how all those sort of fit into a pattern with you. Well, first things first, these things are absolutely connected to nothing in particular. They're only connected to things that are interesting to me, things that I 
have wanted to learn about or things that I've had some interest in, just like horseback riding from the trip to Honduras and finding that it was perfectly suited and situated for my circumstance at that time when it was important um, during that case investigation. And who knows? I mean, you know, next I'll perhaps be learning to do voiceovers for, you know, again, no reason in particular. But what I do find is that life will always throw you curveballs. There are always going to be these headwinds that you face. You, you don't get to predict the time of it. You don't get to choose when it happens. But what I find is that um, seemingly, or, or what I, I see is that the, the people that are able to navigate some of the most challenging times or challenging circumstances are those who are seemingly prepared by having, again, this, this powerful resilience, this ability to master the bounce back, to, to be able to spring back from whatever this challenge is that they're facing because they don't focus so much on the challenge. They're able to sort of get ahead of it, to turn their focus to something else so that they can deal with whatever they're facing that seems like this huge mountain. So they're not so much as dealing with the mountain, they're dealing with um, or they're facing or, or focused on something else that allows them to get past the mountain. I'm learning and I'm seeing, and I'm not suggesting that, again, I've mastered this, but that I, is what I, I believe that there that's where the wingspan comes in because it's knowing and almost anticipating to some point that you're going to have these these change these times in life when you're going to face these headwinds and i actually teach a, a course on um self-care is not selfish um and it encourages whether it's judges or individuals that are in my class it encourages them to focus on on that thing Beverly talked about, which is that meditation or that self care, or whether it's that journaling or it's that um, you know that thoughtfulness or that learning one small thing, which I'm now going to coin as um, you know the what about Bob theory, the baby steps, the learning something small, the learning something you know no matter how small it is, just keeping note of whatever that small thing is, and also giving yourself permission to fail. There's so many times when, you know, the expectation is we must be Midas. And so everything we touch must become gold. If we try it, it must be perfect. We must do it right the first time. And if we are not perfectly perfect each time, then we need not try. Well, the fact is, is that we're human. So I promise you the first time I got on a horse, it was not fun. It wasn't easy. And it took quite a few chances to try to get it right. Why? Because that wasn't something natural for me. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not naturally talented that way, but I am naturally committed. And so if I put my mind to it, I'll keep trying until I can at least get it right enough for me. And so giving yourself permission to fail even in being resilient, I think is something that's so very important because you have to allow yourself permission to change your focus in order to have the energy 
to even come back to the thing that is or the things that are so intense in your life. And I think that's where you get the feathers for your wing so that you can rise above whatever the larger issues are. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. Are you ready to make a difference in the world? The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University can give you the skills to do just that. The school offers a multidisciplinary approach where public policy, environmental studies, and entrepreneurship come together to educate tomorrow's leaders. Learn more about the Master's in Public Administration or Environmental Studies by visiting ohio.edu backslash School. So, Bev, you've talked a bit about learning as a form of resilience in and of itself, but you've also talked about teaching as also being a way of demonstrating a form of resilience. Would you like to talk a bit about that as an aspect of resilience? Yes, I think learning and teaching are so uh, tightly wound together, it's hard to um, separate them. But when you're teaching, um, something, particularly it's, if it's something you don't know all that well, there's like this extra incentive to learn and to really understand things and to to um, totally immerse yourself in something. And one of the things that I found has been a good career move for me over the years is when something looks like it's interesting and nobody around me knows much about it, I discover that if I can just learn a little bit um, I can get ahead of the curve and I don't have to learn a lot. But once I commit myself to being interested in something, it really pushes me forward. I, you know, back years ago, um, when um, lawyers weren't using email and, and some of them were still writing on uh, big old legal pads, I pushed myself as somebody who was interested in technology in that arena. I knew very, very little. It just felt like a good idea. But because I sort of said, we've got to do this, then I put myself on an intense learning uh, program uh, that that scared me enough to keep me going. And, and I've used that again over and over. If something seems like you really want to know it, but it's a lot of work to get it, volunteer or find a way to teach it to somebody else. And you have the fun of learning. And at the same time, you have the fun of interacting with uh, people on a, on a pretty deep level. I, uh, having learning partners in which one teaches the other learn and maybe even change places, that's a really fun way for mentoring relationships to develop. So I, I, I think uh, look for opportunities to teach what it is you want to know. It's a good philosophy. That does sound like a good philosophy. Do you have any particular philosophy or um, maybe even um, pointers for benefits of taking breaks during your learning day? Oh, yeah, really good point. The 
thing is we have a limited ability just human beings have a limited ability in our brains to concentrate on one thing for too long. And I've read different amounts. Some people say 30 minutes, some people say 90 minutes, different research suggests different uh, times. But but basically, it is really hard to do sub- sustained high um, quality learning for a long time. We are meant to spurt in our learning and not do marathon uh, learning sessions. So um, breaking learning um, units into pieces, and even if you're still um, kind of in a learning position, going from one topic to another, um, don't concentrate on the same thing all the time because you get less and less good at what you're learning. And then the really important thing when you're taking breaks is you got to move. If you, if your body's not standing up, if you're not moving around, if you're not getting um, exercise, if you're not getting variety as the day goes along, uh, your brain isn't going to work without having your body kind of moving. So not only don't do the same thing for hours at a time, but don't sit in the same place for hours at a time. Breaks are really important as a part of your learning plan. And so I, I suspect what you're suggesting is that there's a benefit to learning even from your environment. So one can receive learning inspiration even from just your mere surroundings. Absolutely. I think um, learning doesn't just happen from books, although, you know, I'm a big uh, lover of keeping up your skill at reading books. But, but learning is, um, happens when you're listening to other people. Learning happens when you get outside of your own head and your own worries and look around. Learning can happen when you go for a walk in the woods and you're synthesizing things at the same time you're sort of noticing. Learning is about, um, uh, partly it's about managing your awareness and a byproduct of being conscious of learning and having a learning plan is that it helps you to manage your attention, your awareness in a way so that you're living life more fully and getting more done with your time. I'm going to get Tom um, back into the conversation in just one moment. Um, But I realize and I noticed that you really walked us through earlier about this concept of micro learning. But as a converse to micro learning, there's also this concept of deep learning, which I think, um, you know, sort of sits right opposite of that. Can you tell us a bit about what deep learning is and how that juxtaposes to micro learning? Yeah, micro learning is really a learning little bits and little bits of time. Deep learning is when you can, as much as possible, totally engage in the thing that you're studying or you're doing. Um, learning can be, you know, on a tennis court. It doesn't have to be with a book, but it's where you're concentrating and you're putting everything you have into what you're doing. And working with clients, it, the topic of deep learning often um, comes in the uh, concept of deep work as well. If you're writing an important memo, you can't do it in 15 minute. Uh, bits and pieces, because going back and forth, it's hard to really develop that concentration. Deep learning and deep work means that you have a, enough time to kind of 
focus in. You're not trying to multitask. You're trying to um, cut yourself off from distraction. And in order to get things done and to really grapple with difficult things. I try to encourage people to schedule time for deep learning. Everybody's body calendars are different. Their work calendars are different. But it's a good idea to, on your schedule, make a date, make an appointment with yourself at the time of day that works for you and and plan blocks of an hour to really focus in on something if you can do that. Microlearning you can do in bits and pieces. It can be part of a day full of multitasking and you can do it wherever it's convenient. And it's um, kind of learning bit by bit. You don't make the huge ahas typically. You make those big pushes and big leaps sometimes when you're deep into the work. Okay. Um, and this sounds like this is the kind of learning that, as you suggested, is the kind that should be scheduled and could also be subject to the law of diminishing returns if you're not careful about how much of your time you're actually investing in it. Because again, it's, it's deep, it's intensive, and it really should be subject to some scheduling so that you can really get the most from it. Yeah. And I think you start, as you're thinking about scheduling, you start by noticing, um, are you having uh, difficulty at working uh, at one thing for half an hour, or do you sort of automatically find there are times of day where you go deep and it happens well? Sort of, um, if you're thinking about wanting to learn more, whether it's because you want to leap ahead in your career or you want to have more fun in life, if you're thinking about it, start by noticing when are you more likely to learn? How does learning work for you? Are you good with uh, learning from books or do you find yourself immersing yourself in a situation is better? Notice your learning style and then commit to creating space in your life for that kind of learning. One last thing I, I want to ask bef- before we wrap this up, and, and that is the, the matter of control. Um, Judge Gale, you and I have been in professions where – we don't have total control over what's going on, what's happening, what's in our day, what horrible things we hear or have to confront. Uh, I think that's true in a lot of people's businesses and their lives and whether it's economic reasons or or uh, other factors. Sometimes we feel out of control, but yet you say – uh, that learning something different puts you back in control. In control in the sense that it allows me the ability to better focus on the task at hand, it's particularly if it is an intense task, if it requires that um, deep learning that Beverly was just talking about, if it requires that um, intensive focus that um, we were just talking about. The fact of the matter is, is just as you said, the the work that we do, um, it does. We have a lot less control than most would understand or realize. I know that there are a lot Absolutely. that there are a lot of folks <laughs> who believe that because we wear the robe that we we have an awful lot of control. But the truth of the matter is that. We don't have the ability to control the the cases that come through the door. We don't get to control the fact patterns that surround those cases. We have no ability to control um, a lot of the the temperament 
the witnesses, the evidence, yeah, the pictures we have to see, all of those things. And we also can't control the emotion that is naturally connected to them. And there's also the expectation that uh, in the position that we're in, that we, even as human beings, are to not really have an emotional response to them either. Why? Because you signed up for this job. And we're human beings. There are decisions that have to be made um, in these situations that, again, require you to divorce yourself emotionally and to really focus just on the law, on the facts, um, on the case at hand. And that is as true as it is. The fact is that's an, an intense responsibility. That's a heavy lift that does require that you have another gear, an extra gear um, or another focus or an ability to get beyond that so that you can, again, turn off something so that you can focus and then be able to come back to it and still be true to the work that you do. And to a degree, that's a loss of control, but it does allow you to actually do the work that you're you're required to do. And it's necessary. Um, and I think that, again, what we do each day is we practice that resilience and we hone that skill to a point of perfection, almost like sharpening a pencil to its finest point that we we get it right and we work to get it right every single time we are part of what Tom does. I know uh, when he's, I think this goes back to when you were a judge, Tom, is that you, um, you do art, you do music, you, engage in learning things that are not intellectual as a break from the heavy intellectual work of law or um, the intense work of um, uh, uh, media, of being on air. That is so very true when you when you talk about Tom's um, talents that allows a, a different level of release, I believe, um, in this. He's perhaps one of the most artistically talented um, artistically talented judges and journalists that I've ever met and the ability um, for him to, to express it is amazing. And when I see that is, is I, oh, I can only wish that I had that kind of talent, but then again, I'm able to, to live vicariously through his, <laughs> through his skill set, and, and to see him actually demonstrate that. So kudos to you, Tom. Um, I look forward to, to frequently seeing your expressions, because I think that's just another way for you to be able to, to again, put some more feathers on your wings. If I didn't express myself, I'd go crazy. But I, I like your quote that you had, and I want to end with this from the New York Times. You said, uh, Judge Gale, that learning is that extra oomph, O-M-O-O-M-P-H, oomph that extra oomph to turn off the crazy in life and pour yourself into something that is fantastic. Uh, that's, the, that's the best description we could possibly have. And Judge Gale, thank you so much. The conversation between you and Bev uh, was priceless, and, and certainly I know our listeners will benefit from that. Indeed, and I want to especially thank Bev Jones, Beverly, thank you for allowing Tom and us to have, um, Tom and I to have this conversation with you today. 
when I tell you it is extraordinarily enlightening um, to, to be able to speak with you and for you to pour into us all of the um, professional um, learning that you have and to continue to share with us and audiences everywhere these nuggets of wisdom um, that will only help to improve professionals and um, burgeoning professionals all over. It's, it's fantastic. And I know for me, um, again, I've coined this new phrase, this, um, you know, micro learning of um, what about baby steps is, is what I will be using when I go back to teaching um, my self-care courses for judges all over and encouraging them to learn just a little bit every day and knowing that they are still making magnificent strides. Thank you. Well, we always have fun together and we always learn from each other. So I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers and Beverly Jones about why continuous learning is a key to your career and to fulfilling your life. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your guest host, Tom Hodson. Today's career tip is that when you're feeling stuck, bored, or uncertain about what to do next, it's always a good strategy to learn something new. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you come back real soon. Thank you.